Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like dust, rust and spider's webs. Or, Sam, apes, grapes and scrapes. You'll love this. Crepes, wapentakes. What's that? The wapentake is all about Anglo-Saxon England. Very interesting. And jolly japes. Ooh. So it's about the history of the history of, of jokes and and and, and humour. We'll be following the links as we always do in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of siblings is in fact all about early Germanic society and the decline of the Roman Empire. It's about love, conflict, duty and respect. It's also about cheating at monopoly and being very competitive at football, uh, and it's about military comradeship. And retirement homes in the Adriatic. Is it? It is. The man sitting opposite me is himself an object of memorialisation. <laughs> Excellent, thank uh, you. If the past were a coffin, he would be at satin padding. <laughs> oh, bless you. It's Professor Extraordinaire, um, James Daybell. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the grim reaper of history past. It's the famous historical adventurer, truly fashionable man about town, uh, wearing his Baker Boy cap this morning, it's Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello, James. Um, at this time of year when we are all celebrating birth, you and I have decided to do the opposite of that. So we we're, have. we're doing a podcast on the history of death. Death is something, historically, as, as a historian, that has obsessed me for years. Mm. I was supervised by the great Ralph Holbrook. Uh, who's an early modern social historian, worked on the family, all sorts of things. And about a decade or so ago, maybe maybe even older than that now, wrote a massive book about <clears throat> death in early modern England. Uh, so I, I had it from the horse's mouth as a PhD student. So it's something that I've been very, very interested in. And I'm, I'm excited to see where you're going to go with death. Yeah, well, um, my career in, and uh, death has sort of come to it quite a lot, remarkable amount, actually. Um, so I was trained as an archaeologist before I was trained as a historian. Mm. So I've been around bones a long time. Mm. I remember mm. um, doing my first university excavation and we were excavating the old path of the Thames near Eton. I was there digging away very hard 
and the person next to me found a Roman villa and a baby. He found the, he found the bones of a baby, oh, a dead God. baby. I found nothing for two weeks. Still quite cross about it. Um, however, mm. um, there's death there. I've um, come across it quite a lot in my travels in China, especially recently with my new series on the history of uh, relics of China coming up. I'm looking at all sorts of wonderful archaeological excavations of... Uh, graveyards, Chinese graveyards, um, and um, been fascinating to see the way that Chinese archaeologists uh, interpret death and deal with death and what, what, what sort of strands they want to come out of it. I've been involved in it in a, a lot of the books I've read, and I'm going to be talking about uh, the Fighting Temeraire as well today, um, just because of the new £20 note. The new £20 note? The new £20 oh, note has got Turner and the Fighting Temeraire oh, on it. It's a bit of a product placement day for you today. The mm. new series, nice, it, it, nice book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really talking about that, yes. But I'm worried about my legacy. Legacy, Excellent. quite clearly. Excellent. Yes, I'm worried about death. <laughs> Legacy is is actually a really important point, which we can oh. talk about that, and um, also the passing of eras. But I think we'll come back to that. So, mm. should we just have a kind of a chat off the top of our heads? So when you talked about doing death in early modern England, yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm assuming there are so many different ways that you can approach death from any particular time period perspective, yep, can't you? definitely. I mean, I think one of the first things is to think about how, as historians, you approach death before we sort of do the unexpected about it. But if you look at it, you can look at it from the perspective of structures. You think about marriage as something that forms relationships. You talked about birth earlier on. Death is, is quite simply the opposite of that. It is what disrupts relationships. It ends life, it dissolves things, it leads to widows, it leads to orphans, it leads to remarriage. So for the family, it can completely restructure things. You can then approach it from a psychological point of view, which is fascinating. And you can look at attitudes towards death in terms of dying. So one dying oneself, how does one prepare for death? How do you accept it? Do you accept it? Are you scared of death? How has that changed across time? How do different cultures deal with that? How does the Reformation impact upon that? And we've, I'm sure we've talked about that before. Um, grief is something that we've looked at a yeah. lot. And different society. We, we wrote the we wrote a chapter on tears. And I think wailing and crying and tears and showing emotion are you know, fascinating angles. Um, and then it's how it's how people deal with that. So how do you psychologically prepare yourself for it? And how do you psychologically deal with the passing of, say, a loved one, whether it be a, a spouse or whether it be a, a sibling? And then there, I suppose, other things that you can think of are, thirdly, the rituals and practices associated with death, yep. from the funeral itself and burial, um, celebration of, of it. Um, and then I suppose there are other things that connect it in, in other ways. You can think about the literary and um, artistic responses to death and memorialization. And you can think about... Um, music in particular. Is music one, and funeral monuments and the funeral itself. Um, you can think about it in terms of health and medicine and disease and dearth and epidemics. We've talked about accidents, so you can think about what causes death. Um, you can think about it in terms of um, capital punishment, um, military, wars. So, you know, there are, there are a whole range of ways that you, can, that you can look at it across time, across periods, um, across continents, across different, different cultures, the way in which gender, social class, 
religion all sort of breathe different aspects into it. So it's you know it's it's ripe for everything. But for me, um, it's about paper, comfort, status, wardship, and suicide. Mm. Probably a little too much to do in one yeah. one little poddy. But. I've found loads we could do as well. It's interesting you mentioned grief. Yes. Um, because that brings us to our um, our old friend Guillaume Duchesne, doesn't it? Mm. Um, who is someone we talk about in our, in our live show. If you haven't seen us live, do <laughs> come is. and see us on stage. It's immensely good fun. One of the things we talk about is a Frenchman called Guillaume Duchesne who, 19th century... Um, was exploring the history of emotions and he believed that specific emotions were linked to specific muscle groups in the face and he went around electrocuting people in the face trying to recreate certain emotions. Yes. And it was quite shocking stuff. Uh, And one of the ones he did was grief. And it's interesting, Mm. isn't it? Because um, what we do is we, we show the picture that, du- uh, that Duchenne created to illustrate grief, and we ask people in the audience what they think it might be, and everyone usually says sadness, depression, they kind of get it, but when you say, oh, it's a particular type of sadness or depression, everyone's very fast, aren't they? Oh, they're like, that's grief. Yes. That image, that what physically is happening to that person, that's a physical manifestation of grief, and people kind of get it, isn't it? It's, um, it's like a natural instinctive... Connected to beard tugging in medieval Europe. Oh, that's true. That's the clue, that's the clue I give to people when they can't get it. Yeah. And it, it tests whether they've actually been listening to what people are doing <laughs> yeah. on stage. In fact, I think death's going to be one of these subjects which, which, which will inspire people to go and listen to lots of other podcasts. We definitely yeah. talk about it in Beards because of the beard tugging. There's that, yeah. that king on the front, west front of Exeter Cathedral pulling his beard. Yeah. Um, we talk about it in the episode on the mirror. Yes. Where we look at Catherine Phillips and the idea is that this is the... The crystal glass for the Christian woman, which is a, 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 a tra- tract that was written at the end of the 16th century about a young woman who died, um, and it's a, 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 a sort of um, a tract about her life and basically how to be a, how to be a good wife and good mother. Written on her deathbed. Written on her deathbed yeah. and involves her fighting Satan and all sorts of out-of-body experience. And we talk about it in the history of accidents and we talk about it in the history of the bed. Yes. Because the bed, yes. you, you were talking about all the, you know... That's um, where it ca- yes. What happens with, with death, but the bed as a, as a portal in and out of this world mm. is fascinating. Yeah. And how that changed to hospitals. Actually, it's, it's like a kind of a door in and out of the that world. May be, that may be where it is, actually. The deathbed may have been where I was getting getting it. But it's brilliant. Any of you have access to early English books online should definitely download this and read it. I'm going to start with The Fighting Ten Rare. So I just noticed recently that the new £20 note's coming out. It will be another a joyous thing in plastic or whatever they make them out of nowadays. I can't Excellent. literally believe they're not... They're making, they're making them out of plastic. <laughs> not the only thing in the world. Please don't do it. But aren't, isn't the argument that they're more durable? So, but, but anyway, still, it's plastic. Um, yes. Dave put Turner and The Fighting Temeraire, his famous painting, on... Um, the £20 note. So this painting, if you, if you can't visualise it, you're probably in the minority. Um, I'm looking at it don't, now. Don't beat yourself <laughs> up about that, don't worry. Um, it's been declared the nation's favourite painting several times. 2005, it won a big Radio 4 vote. It is that glorious painting of the sun setting on the Thames. Um, it's, it's like Turner pretending to be Turner. 
just a, a magic kind of um, burst of, of colour, oranges, yellows, reds. And then on to the left of the image, you've got the uh, the fighting Temeraire. You've got the HMS Temeraire, a huge second-rate warship that fought at the Battle of Trafalgar, being towed up the Thames by a steam tug. And what's happening is the Temeraire is being taken from her anchorage, the ancient English naval anchorage of Sheerness, up to Rotherhithe, back into the belly of London. Uh, where she's going to be broken up. Um, and it's a painting that's been interpreted in a, a, a huge number of ways. It's the death of a ship, basically. Uh, it's, yes, it's the death of a ship, that's one. Yes. Um, it's also the death of an era, Oof. of an entire era, which is another. It's also to do with the death of Turner's dad. It's also to do with, with the, the sort of increasing awareness of Turner's own mortality. Mm. Um, he didn't paint things like this when he was a young man. And the way the way that artists change over their lives and the the things that fascinate them, and this is the perfect example of it because his dad recently died. Uh, he was very close to his dad, and people say he was never the same afterwards. And so he was addressing, as you said before, you know, how does death affect you? And this is one way of looking at it through the perspective of an artist. Mm. So what you've got here, I mean, is, is is a painting that tells not just one story; it tells an enormous number of stories. Primarily. You've got the sun setting on the, the wooden walls of the Great Age of Sail. It is the death of an era. Turner was um, born in the 1770s. He died in a period when they, they had e extraordinary changes to the Industrial Revolution, most notably here looking at the steam tugs. Um, but his response to that's really interesting. Um, and many people have said it's to do with mourning the death of an era and being concerned about the security of England, which was always maintained by the Royal Navy. What's going to happen once all of these beautiful big warships like the Temeraire are going to be broken up? And you've got this modern, steamy, stinky tug pulling her to her destruction. But the interesting thing about it, I think, is if you see this painting in real life, mm. um, the steam tug is painted absolutely beautifully. Um, as, there's as much attention, if not more, paid to it as there is to the great sailing warship behind her. And Turner was one who was, was a real modernist. He was fascinated and, and very fond of what was happening in the world at the time. He's not one of these people that saw change and hated it. He was a person who saw change and embraced it and liked it. And this is actually more to do, I think, with the um, sort of natural cycle of life. Um, about progressive change, about the need to embrace change, about the awareness of history, actually, as much as anything else. And it's, it's more like it's a, I think, a memorial to an age. Um, and interestingly, Turner was completely obsessed with his own legacy. He um, was very controlling over his, his paintings. And this one particular, he wouldn't let any of the executors of his will take. They were allowed to take one painting each, but not this one. Mm. And it now hangs in the... In a, in, um, Room 37 of the National Gallery. It's in amazing condition, the most beautiful condition of any of Turner's paintings. And that's because of his concern for his own legacy. Mm. He wanted that painting to be hung in the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square near Nelson's Column, not far from St Paul's, where Turner and Nelson are buried within feet of each other. Um, what do you think is the more interesting fact, that, that Turner was born on St George's Day like Shakespeare, or that Turner and Nelson are buried within feet of each other in St Paul's Cathedral? Oh, I don't normally do that sort of history. No. But um, 
Uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare, I think. Shakespeare. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. Bit of both, bit of death. It's a difficult one. Uh, people should uh, tweet what they, what they think. Yeah. Anyway, this... Um, the most interesting. This is... I, I did a, a kind of series of podcasts, actually. We might release a little special from what I've done before about the Fighting Ten Rare, just because it's coming out on this 20-pound note. But it's all to do with an artist's response to his own mortality, to legacy, and to the passing of time. And I think more importantly, actually, it's to do with, with this... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Awareness of, of how you respect things that have been lost. So the whole point about this painting is that the Temeraire itself doesn't exist because it's been broken up. Mm. And so what he's done is he's created a, a legacy for that ship. And it's all to do with awareness and preserving and respecting heritage. So if, you, if it's yeah. something is going to be broken up, what are you going to do to make sure it's not forgotten? And so he's made damn sure that the ship isn't going to be forgotten, even though it's been broken up. And so... Uh, you know, I, I, Turner was a, was a, an artist, of course, but I think, you know, at heart, he was a historian. He was someone who cared yes. in the, very, very deeply about the material culture of the past. Hmm. Goodness me, that's, that's poetic. I think that's very brilliant, much. Sam. That was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think I think there are lots of things that echo there, and this this concern about memorialisation, about celebrating what is lost, celebrating the past, I think is is absolutely key. I want to take it in a slightly different. Uh, direction but very similar as well um and it is about memorialization but it's also about death is about paper one of the deep enduring aspects of history is that we are writing about the past about times people nations countries that have gone that have passed and we do it from the paper records that survive and in producing those paper records that's not just serendipity that is Intent. It's intent to leave a record. Like the painting, it's an attempt to leave a record for future generations. And there's a brilliant uh, manuscript little volume in Devon Heritage Centre, just a couple of miles down the road from where we are, that I came across a few years ago. And it's called... It's the remembrance book of a Devon yeoman farmer called Robert Furs, and it was produced in 1593. This was the year that he died. He was born in around 1535. And what he did was he basically 
knew he was dying. He had a young son who was going to take over. And what he wanted to do was set all his worldly affairs in order. And he produced this remarkable manuscript book of his so-called evidences for his son. And it's it's bizarre. It's a sort of cross between uh, medieval cartulary and a family history. A medieval cartulary is one of those those um, manuscript books that you have that is basically a collection of all sorts of founding documents for the family. So in it, he assembles details of all the lands, properties that his heir was to inherit. It's got all sorts of little uh, character sketches and biographical details of many members of the family. There are all sorts of little little gems in there. So it's partly acting as a book of remembrances. When this son takes over, he's got everything in place for him. But also, it's about paternal advice. So it provides his nine-year-old son with uh, lessons about how to live his life. It's all about, you know, you know, don't drink too much, don't do this, that and the other. But also it's telling him about how he should handle paper records. Because basically at the root of, of power and inheritance is uh, the legal basis of your inheritance. And he gives this analysis of estates um, in, ter- in biographical terms So he praises his father-in-law, Edmund Rowland, for his archival habits, describing him as the only one among all his forebears, and I quote, to make writings, he commonly kept three clerks for that purpose, and that he himself took great pains, writings that he had kept in a locked coffer. But, and this is the lesson to the son, on his death, Edmund's widow, Joan, remarried a wicked man named Edmund Drew, who quarrelled with her, forsaking her company for that of his old mates. Perhaps distrustful of this new husband, Joan had her dead husband's papers locked with a key conveyed to a neighbour's house for safekeeping. Yet this new husband was an absolute tyrant, real rat, um, a very deceitful um, person. He He was told by some of his friends where his wife had kept these papers and he promptly stole the coffer that they were in, so the box that they were in, um, and gave it to his own mother. And then there's a description of how his mother kept it. Um, There the coffer remained, common to every person in the house, a long time for want of the lock, and the miss in truth did greatly spoil the writing. So when we should have our writings, there was nothing perfect. Some eaten, I assume by mice, some lost, that was great hap that we had any. Here you may learn what it is to leave your evidence to women. He was not content to spoil the mother of all, but her heirs also, as far as in him was. So this... There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going wow. on there. This, this little book is a... It, and it, get, it, it goes to the sun. The sun then fills it in with, you know, new bits of information. It's then passed down the family line. Um, it ends up with some, with some sisters. It then... It has multiple uses, so it's then used to record births, deaths and marriages, and then it ends up in 1975 with the solicitors Penny and Howard in Tiverton, and from there 
it's found by an antiquarian and it's picked up and popped in the record office. Mm. So you connect there. So there are lots of things going on there. You're quite right. You've got a, a father who is near death, contemplating his own mortality, setting things in order. There is a duty for him to set up things for his son. So he produces this book. This book then is a, is also uh, an educative lesson to the son on you know a nine-year-old boy how to how to do things that he will actually have it then it then sets all the land and evidence in order and then it is passed down to future generations so it is about it's about paper keeping and records and and also inheritance which we can come back to what's that great line about this is what it is to leave something for a woman so this is what happens when you basically leave your evidence uh, to a neglectful woman. I mean, that, what, what we've got there is an example of early modern misogyny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, he's basically, he, the, the, the new husband is basically in a socially more powerful position, steals from his wife, gives it to his own mother, and then her, you know, she obviously doesn't care for it at all. It's obviously in the corner um, and being eaten by rats. I mean, there are various recipes at the time for how to treat paper so that it isn't eaten by mice. The, um, it also makes you wonder about um, people's, like, the last thing they ever wrote. Yes. Their, their last manuscript yes. evidence ever created by a person before they, before they pass away. And I wonder yep. if you could actually look at that. I bet you could. I bet you could. A lot of it would be a will. Yeah. So it would be a will, a will that somebody would make on their deathbed. That's interesting. Has the practice of wills changed? We think rather than making it kind of when you get married or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you you do your la- you would do your last will and testament, or you would, or if you didn't have it in place, you would write it. Then you would write it on your deathbed. If you were too, if you'd gone too far, you dictate it and somebody else writes it, and then you might scrawl or or sign it, or you do it. You do an oral will. Um, but basically, what you, what you do at that stage. All the land and everything is normally tied up, and what you're doing there is you're giving away the sort of more personal effects. Signatures on deathbeds must be interesting. We have obviously done something yes. on the history of the signature, but the yes. way that, that that signature has changed from the, 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 the signature that's used in life. Yep. Ah. A, a manipulation of the deathbed. Yes. Um, the other interesting Because it thing, makes you very vulnerable, doesn't it? Yes. The other interesting thing is... Um, looking at the manipulation of wills, I just filmed about Henry VIII's will uh, with Tracy Borman for a new thing that's coming out, and we were up in the National Archives examining that. And there's a whole debate about Henry's intentions with the will and whether, you know, and, and how it was signed and who had control of the of the of his signature. And then, because basically, what you've got is a is a is a transition that allows for a young boy to inherit with a sort of Protestant, you know, education, which will change, change the, everything, change everything, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the people that are set up around him. Um, and the big debate is about whether whether Henry did this intentionally, which, he, you know, I think this is exactly what he wanted to do. But but it's still it's still a big debate about the nature of the Henrician monarchy. If you think about death in terms of not just family, but also in terms of nations, and in terms of when monarchs die, if you have a look at, uh, just thinking through our new show on the Tudors, and at the start we do a sort of trot through the different Tudor monarchs, and actually, if you, it makes you think about how that changing of personality at the top of a regime through death 
can fundamentally change the direction of the country. Mm. You know, when it, when Mary the first comes to the throne, you know, before that you've had her step, um, her half brother uh, Edward the sixth. You've had a sort of very sort of um, sort of reformist move in religion. She comes along, Catholicism is back in. She then doesn't live as long as she might. Uh, her early death leads to. Princess Elizabeth becoming Elizabeth I of England. And so the whole history, whole religious history of the country changes uh, because of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously that happens in businesses, it happens yes. in families, the whole tenor of everything can suddenly change. And it, my, it happens less nowadays because people die less frequently than they did uh, yep. In the past, but that meant that must mean surely that that life that things were more unpredictable. That actually having anything sustained, anything like if, whatever you might have set up, whether it was a family way of doing things, whether it was a, a successful business, whether it was a monarchy, was more likely, much more likely than it is now to go completely off the rails. Yeah, yeah. So actually, having strands of continuity in the past was much more difficult than it is today. Instinctively, I I resist that the the idea that that continuity is more difficult in the past. I get the sense that it would in fact be much certainly in terms of certainly in terms of continuity in terms of bureaucracy in terms of family continuity. I think that much more stable. There'd be a much clearer line of inheritance and transmission, deeply patriarchal. Um, but, you know, it's the job of the historian to look at continuity and change in the past. Uh, it is, it is. Shall we, um, I'd be unemployed if I... I'd be unemployed <laughs> as a historian if I didn't address that question yeah. on an almost daily, if not hourly, basis. Um, I tell you what, while we're talking about the Tudors, let's just have a quick look at this um, this picture. Um, we've already done half an hour, so we're going to have a look at this and stop, and I think we're going to regroup and do death two, yes, aren't we? Yes, definitely. Um, death number two. I wanted to have a look at this image, it's in the British Library, and it uh, is an image of the funeral procession of Queen Elizabeth I going to Westminster Abbey on the 28th of April 1603. Um, one of the things we talked about was, you know, the visual response, visual reaction to death. In this response, what we've got here is the first ever visual depiction in any format of a funeral procession of an English monarch. And it's fabulous. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it, and it's and it's long. So yeah, it's it's. Um, Think Bayer tapestry, but just yeah, a little, okay. just a little shorter. So it's a it's a scene of uh, the pe- all the different people who are at her funeral. So Bayer tapestry is all about death, though, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's the death of a death of a of a way of life. I mean, it all changes and the Normans come in. We should talk about that. Yep. Not only is there lots of pictures of death in it, whether it's Harold or lots of knights with their legs chopped off. It's, it's an a, epoch. My God, it's it is. It's an epoch. Is it an it's age? Like, is like it a fighting temeraire. new period? Anyway, we, we have become sidelined. It happens regularly. We are talking about this. So it's it's long and thin. Very long. And at the front, we have the, the horse trapped with velvet led by two attendants, the sergeant of the vestry and children of the royal, of the chapel royal, We've yeah. then got uh, royal servants, including the principal secretary, um, Sir Robert Cecil, um, in the next one. So we've got all sorts of people depicted here. So it is about... it's about In colour, we should say. In colour. Um, it in, is drawn with Indian ink, interestingly. Yes, and they're treading... You must know something about They're Indian treading ink. on red as well. They are. Um, so this is ink that's been imported, yeah? Yes, yes. It has ink that's been imported to allow them to create this image. Uh, the details, magnificent. What you've got here is an outstanding 
Tudor graphic artist, yes. essentially. Um, you can see their clothes, you can see their hats. Those kids are fantastic, aren't they? And then, yeah. So the next one, we've got um, the chariot drawn by four horses carrying the coffin covered in purple velvet. So we know that um, Elizabeth was carried through the streets um, uh, and there was a, a sort of a life-size effigy of yeah. her. There was an image of her, a bit like a, an, an Egyptian pharaoh. Yes. Um, so a lifelike painted carving of the Queen. Um, the canopy itself is carried by six knights with gentlemen pensioners, the Queen's ceremonial bodyguard. After that, you've got countesses, assistants, countesses and viscountesses, the daughters of earls and baronesses, maids of honour in the privy chamber, um, Sir Walter Rawley, captain of the guard, and then the guard. So it's about pageant and ritual and social hierarchy. You know, to, to attend the Queen's funeral in such a public way like that is a statement about who you are. It's not only, it's not only protocol and order, but it is a... It's a snapshot of who is in power at the end of Elizabeth's reign. It's also interesting that Elizabeth dies on the 24th of March, 1603, and is buried on the 28th of April. There's a big gap, and the reason for that gap is that a funeral procession like this takes a hell of a long time to put in place. And if you look at the, if you look at the, the time gap, as a, as a keen historian of death, you look at the gap between... Death and burial. And yeah. it, often is, it often is about a month. Oh, that's interesting. Much quicker now. And other other cultures, faiths, want to bury people immediately. Mm. Um, whereas this is all about it's all about pageantry, honour, and it's a real window into life. In the same yes. way, I think if you studied um, port, more media images of the uh, funeral of Princess Diana, for example, you get a real snapshot of what of, of what people are wearing, what people yep. are doing, how people are thinking, how people are behaving. So this, in, in, you know, is a little snapshot into life in the Tudor period. And one very interesting aspect of it shows some of the children of the chapel who'd been yes. acting at the Second Blackfriars Theatre um, for three years since September 1600. And this was a little company of boys actors taken from, um, taken from the chapel so successful that it actually led to some adult players being made to go on tour to go and find other audiences. So, so people going to go and see these kids who yes. are obviously um, particularly talented on the stage. Yes. And if people want to have a look at this, go along to the British Library online collections. Just type in British Library, Elizabeth I funeral procession, and you have an amazing digitised image that you can scroll across and there are all sorts of uh, glosses as well for it, describing it. it I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful, vividly painted um, depiction. I love the way that the guards are all sort of, they're, they're in discussion. There's a lot of hand gestures, there's a lot of movement and motion. There's action, isn't there? Yeah, um, there really is. It's, um, it's like a photograph. It's quite yes. extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary. And it wouldn't surprise me if you looked at this gear. I mean, I'm looking at all the maids of honour. Um, there are lots and lots of them, but in a bit like the terracotta army, everyone's been painted individually and perfectly. Yes. You? There, yes. are, there are actual people here. Yes. And I don't think they've been invented and they've been made up. I think this is an act, these are actual portraits of the people. This is what they look like yeah. in the funeral procession. That's what makes it so wonderful. A moment, a moment caught in time, but it required the queen of the country to die for someone to actually do this and then for it to be preserved and then for it to be curated and then for it to be put online or whatever there's a yeah. the sort of strand of significance of who's died which means that this has survived 
And in political terms, what's interesting about this is that then there is a, as we all know, there is a new monarch. Uh, Elizabeth dies without uh, an heir, and her cousin James the Sixth of Scotland comes down and is. James VI of Scotland and the first of England. And what we get is a complete rebalancing of power uh, there. So you know, it's very interesting, the sort of groups of nobles who rush up to the border to greet him on his way down. The continuity figure, though, is Robert Cecil. Uh, he's the man who basically smooths the way for a very smooth, uh, peaceful transition of power. So, so they're talking a lot because they've got a lot to talk about. I should an, an awful, <laughs> there was an a hell of a lot to talk, to talk about. about. I mean, it's interesting to think about the about a funeral that bring a, a funeral of this national scale that brings together important people from across the country. Funerals are occasions of sociability and sort of political networking. You know, imagine the. Imagine the funeral of Diana. You're having all sorts of heads of state, um, important political figures nationally there, and it's an opportunity to meet up and, and make talk, decisions. And, and make decisions, and maybe that's what we are, have captured here. Yeah, to maybe not decision-making but, but uh, process. But the historical imagination should allow us to. They might be talking about the weather. I think that they might be talking about the, the weather. They might. Oh God, goodness me, carrying this. Bloody it's curse. so heavy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, guys, we're going to stop there because we've been uh, rabbiting on, and it turns out that James and I have got a lot to say about death. Who knew that? This isn't the death of death. It's not the death of death. Um, there will be a rebirth of death, <laughs> and then a birth of birth. When yes. we're going to talk about birth, if we've got time. Yes. Uh, right, so if you like what you hear, everyone, um, I really hope you do, but please leave us a review on iTunes. It really makes a massive difference. You can subscribe to the podcast, tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. Um, and if you want to find out what we are up to, then have a look at historiesoftheunexpected.com. It's our website. We're actually becoming incredibly proud of this. We've got an online magazine. Um, do get in touch with us if you want to help us edit that and put some articles up that's fun and also most importantly you can see when we're on tour we've got all sorts of fun dates coming up haven't we we are upstairs at the gatehouse in highgate 2nd of february calstock arts down near us in devon 7th of february and then mamhead church on the 8th of february and on and on oh stratford upon avon we're going to where um Shakespeare's Buried. Shakespeare's Church, yes. Shakespeare's Church on the 13th of February. And then the Tewkesbury Roses Theatre. Have a look at our tour page, please. Um, and also, please have a, um, a look at our Patreon page. James and I uh, are sitting in my shed, surrounded by furniture, um, and having to stop all the time because of the trains. And we yes. would really like to be able to save up to get a local recording studio to give you guys the best quality sound possible. So, um, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Also, before we go, while we are talking about please, I would like to hear from any teachers who have been using Histories of the Unexpected as a prompt inspiration in their classroom. I would love to hear about what you have been doing. And also from people in museums. Uh, if this has changed the way in which you uh, think about your collections or present your collections, I would love to hear from you. So please do get in touch uh, and I will I will email you back. Yep, we come and talk to schools as well. We've got a schools page. Have a look at our schools we page. Do. We should do that for museums, James. We should. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Brilliant, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.